Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. I was looking at these students like, Lord, why did you bring them here? Like, what in the world can we possibly do in the face of so much need? I got out a piece of paper and I said, every single orphan you interact with has had their heart ripped in half, and I ripped it in half. And then I started to tell them some of the experiences we knew orphans had at school and dorm rooms and visitation days as they try to fall asleep when they work in homework. I just kept ripping and ripping, and I said, with this tiny little fraction of a piece of paper I have left, if I told this child that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life, there's no place for that gospel to grow. It, there's, there's no heart there fertilized enough for them to even understand that. We're going to have to actually love them for a long time before the gospel will even have a context. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Russell Berry. What are you most passionate about in your life? For some, they know the answer to that question right away, while others don't really have an answer yet. Today, I'm talking to two extremely passionate people who created back-to-back ministries after God led them on an incredible journey. What started as youth group mission trips grew to become a ministry which cares and provides for orphans and youth all over the world. Not only are Todd and Beth Guckenberger the founders of Back-to-Back Ministries, but they are also the parents to 11 children through biological birth, fostering, and adopting. They are passionate about helping children in need all over the world by helping them know they are loved and wanted. Join me as I ask Beth and Todd, where are you from? Well, I think for this episode, we're going to have to change the name. Instead of where are you from, we're going to have to do where y'all from. (laughs) (laughs) For the first time ever, we have two guests at the same time. So Todd and Beth Guckenberger, where y'all from? I was born in Indiana, but I spent most of my childhood in Cincinnati, Ohio. So all Midwest experiences and even went to college in the Midwest. So really didn't get a chance to live the life I was living as an adult until after we had graduated and gotten married. Gotcha. Yeah. And likewise, I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, or outside Cincinnati, Ohio, and went to college in Indiana. And then after that, it was international. 
Okay. All right. So first of all, we got a lot of Hoosier love in the building because, you know, <laughs> I lived in Indiana for eight years as well. So we got some folks that know something about Culver's, that know something about Skyline Chili. Y'all know about that stuff, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely yes. do. In fact, growing up, I thought everybody knew about those kinds of things. It wasn't until later I realized how strange we are. Yes. Yeah. And it's Skyline. If you don't like Skyline, that's kind of a public shaming here. So. <laughs> That's all right. All right. So we're going to do like a relay. So I'm going to pass the mic back and forth. So Beth, since you went ahead and start off, tell us a little bit about what it was like for you to grow up. How long were you in Indiana before you moved? And tell us a little bit about what that was like for you growing up there. Yeah, I lived in Indiana until the third grade. Hmm. And we were in a, you know, Indianapolis is a big city, but we were in a community within that city limits. You know, rode our bike to church and walked to the ice cream shop, and I, I didn't know that much about the world. My world was pretty small still when I was living in Indiana. I just knew my very favorite place to go was our church basement. That's where the kids' ministry happened, and if there was ever anything happening at church in any way, shape, or form, I was first in line. And what I remember most about those early church experiences is the affection of the people within our church community for one another and how good that felt to be among them. Later, I kind of am realizing I learned some some good Bible stories in that season, but mainly I left my season in Indiana with the impression that God's family likes each other a lot and likes to be together. My parents were really kind of natural neighborhood evangelists. Hmm. We always had a lot of people in our house who didn't know Jesus, and I used to get excited about when we would pray as a family before someone came for dinner. And I, my parents were a lot more sophisticated in their evangelism. I would usually blurt out at some point, like, so do you don't know Jesus? Like, why wouldn't you know Jesus? And it took me a while, you know, as I grew up to have a little bit more finesse with my evangelistic <laughs> approach. So what prompted the move to Ohio? Yeah, my dad was a, a businessman. He was working for a large pharmaceutical company who was bought by another large pharmaceutical company. I now realize it's something transient families do all the time. felt very dramatic to me, leaving all of our people, and it felt disruptive. Moved into a community that was different than the one that I had been in first, and so learning to be around different people and who believe different things who had families. I'd never met any child of a divorced family until then. Like, just realizing some of that bubble I had been living in was getting popped. And, um, you know, some of that was corresponding with just age and maturation, but just seeing more of what was happening in the world. And my parents found a church that they liked, but it was almost an hour away from our house. And so we traveled there to go to church for the first couple of years. But that meant I didn't live in the community with the other people that we were getting to know. So there was a lot, a lot of disruption happened in that season. But I'm certainly grateful Cincinnati's been my home ever since. Yes. So with that disruption, how did you process that? And where were you in your actual faith journey in terms of coming to know Jesus personally? Yeah, I made a decision for Jesus as a child and then probably made it a hundred more times. I mean, I was like captain of the church youth group. Again, if the church was open, I was in it. And I 
I had a strong call for evangelism at an early age. So, like, put New Testaments in my neighbor's mailboxes again, not totally an effective way. Wait, like, how old were you when you were doing this? Oh, like, fourth grade, fifth grade. Wow. Yeah, I mean, running for class president, as soon as I got the platform, making sure everybody knew about the Sermon on the Mount. Just it was in me from a really young age. When I was 22, my father, who had really championed that faith journey in my life, cheered me on, sent me on mission trips, bought me and all my friends' Bibles, let us have 100-plus people in my basement for outreaches. Always championed it. He got sick um, with cancer. And I can remember, like, hey, no worries. We know exactly what to do. We're going to pray in Jesus' name. And we're going to fast. and We're going to anoint you with oil. And we're going to do it with two or three other people. And God will heal you. And so my dad ended up dying from cancer at 51, mm. and I had no room in my theology for God not to come through for me. And that's absolutely what it felt like. So I had this idyllic, like Jesus-loving childhood that quietly built a little bit of a false theology that if you do things God's way, God will do things your way. I look in hindsight and realize I'm glad that faith was rocked in the way that it was because I would now spend the rest of my adult life in the middle of very difficult storylines and very, very hard injustices. And I needed to have room in my faith to realize that something can be be hard and still be good. Um, okay. That, that was a big story. <laughs> that is, that is. And I'm just going to put pause on that just so we can catch up. So you're in Cincinnati where Todd's story begins, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. Todd, tell us a little bit about your background. I was born in Cincinnati and I'm a twin, which is awesome. And actually, I think it's a, it's a big part of my story. My twin brother is my best friend. Uh, we actually work together today, serve in ministry, but that was a huge part of my childhood. So always had a best friend, always had a confidant. We always had each other, which was really, really great. Parents were married, but they got divorced when I was eight. And so that kind of rocked my world a little bit. Mm. So my mom, you know, being a single mom, she stayed single for a bunch of years after they separated. So from eight to 12, 13 years old. And I, I think in that season, seeing some of the hardships that a single mom mm. went through, and, and we actually experienced too. We were, you know, she didn't make a lot of money. It wasn't really a great relationship with my dad at the time. Although I have a great relationship with him now, there, there was there was lots of lots of messy details in there, and and so to see her struggle, I mean, you know, cleaning houses on the weekends to make ends meet, we went from kind of more middle class to to not, and so that added some challenges. And we weren't poor because I've seen world poverty, and we weren't anything close to poor, but we felt the the hit in that sense. It was definitely a unique season, but it definitely gave me a heart for single moms, even in my adulthood. You know, so looking at what what moms experience and, and how that plays out. It's really, really difficult. Mm. And at this point, how would you describe where you're at in your faith journey and how that developed through this experience? My dad was a minister in a church. Mm. Really, I don't know if I didn't hear the gospel or it was never said, so I'm not blaming anybody. Eight to 12 was this pre-adolescent junior high season where I was kind of rebellious. I mean, I did some stupid things and, you know, I didn't hang out with the right crowd, but my mom met a guy when I was 12 and got remarried and it ended up being one of the best things. He was a great stepdad. He ended up dying years later. But after we moved, when, when my mom got married, we moved to a new community in Cincinnati and it kind of gave us a fresh start. It was like the beginning of junior high. And then things started on a trajectory of, okay, 
hey, maybe there is something out there. And then when I was in ninth grade, I heard the gospel for the first time at a Young Life weekend, and it was it. I didn't, I didn't look back. I knew this is what I wanted, the, the way the gospel was presented. Somebody loved me unconditionally. It was in that season, the father I didn't have. And so it was really, really powerful. Wow. So, okay, so that transformation happens. So now we can get to part where, how do you two guys together <laughs> we do have different versions i'm glad that um it sounds like it's my turn to hold yeah, the baton uh, <laughs> we met at a citywide young life event there was a bible study that was being offered to anybody who wanted to qualify to serve at a young life camp and todd and i never ended up either of us serving at that camp but we did participate in the bible study that was the prereq and i didn't know anybody at the gathering there was no one from my high school going so i was kind of alone and uh, I ended up sitting next to him at one of the first meetings, and I didn't have all the right materials with me, and he had more materials than he needed, which I now realize is very tough <laughs> to be, be overprepared. And then I asked him if I could share some of the things that he had brought, papers and pens and extra Bibles. And that was really our first interaction. I didn't get his name that day. So like a week or two later, someone who knew us both said to me, hey, this guy in my high school says he's going to marry you. And I said, I don't think I know anybody from my high school. Who is it? And she's like, this guy's name is Todd Gukumer. And I said, I'm not bearing anybody the last name Gukumer. I don't even know who you're talking about. But uh, certainly the joke is on me. And we ended up interacting about a month later. We saw each other and he asked me out. And yeah, and the, kind of the rest of history. We dated yeah. all through the rest of high okay, school. Okay, hold on. I'm sorry. I got to interrupt this nice little <laughs> bow that you just put on it because I, there's some interesting details here. All right. So from what I gather, y'all go to a Young Life event. Uh, you sit at the same table, don't have materials. So you ask him for some. He shares it with you. You go on about your merry way. And then two weeks later here that there's some guys going around telling people that you're going to be his wife. <laughs> it was instant. I, it was actually from the moment she walked in the door. Oh. I knew I knew right when I saw her that this was going to be the girl. <laughs> and then later, our mutual friend kind of set us up, which was great. Yeah. What was it about Beth that kind of gave you that immediate impression? We kind of jokingly say, you know, well, I didn't match her spiritual hotness level. I'll tell you that she was she was way far ahead of me. I was I was a Christ follower and I loved Jesus and and was doing everything I could to to, to pursue that relationship. But I'd never met anybody who who loved God the way she did. And and it was it was instant in the meeting that we that we first met. But it was it was instant in the following meetings that we had at the Young Life. And so I was instantly attracted to that. I want this is what I wanted. This is the kind of woman. I wanted to be with. And uh, for me, it was an easy, easy decision. Mm. How about you, yeah. Beth? Because, I mean, you're you're getting this news secondhand, right? Two weeks later, <laughs> like, who's that guy? Uh, <laughs> like, so how did you turn the corner? <laughs> yeah, I had just come back from a mission trip. So I'd spent the summer in Costa Rica with a mission agency, and we had traveled the whole country. And it felt like such a different kind of experience than my peers had had that summer. And so I already kind of was just feeling over kind of classic high school dating. So I didn't really have eyes to see. I wasn't really, I wasn't on the lookout for that. And when I met Todd, one of the first things I said to him, which I think is kind of bold for a 17-year-old, but I was just like, I don't want a normal life. I don't want to live a normal life. If you're interested in living a normal life, which he was probably just interested in like prom at that point, but I was <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I don't want anything to do with you. And when I heard him talk about, 
you know what the gospel had meant to him and that he also was looking to lead a life that was mm. kind of unconventional, which I'm not even sure we would have known how to define it at the time, but we were attracted to that part in the other. And again, now I have all the right words to say, I think our initial meetings were anointed. I didn't know mm. those words anointing. I didn't understand what the Holy Spirit was doing, but Certainly, it was all the initial parts of love, like infatuation and Mm. attraction. But it was also like this magnetic pull Mm. to one another. And we probably acted like we were married way before we we should have in terms of exclusivity and all all of that and and, and the kind of conversations we were having. But, I mean, I I was writing Beth Guggenberg on my high school English notebooks, you know, Mm. long before it would ever become my name. Yeah. (laughs) And we had a couple of defining conversations where it was looking into the future, like, this is what we want. Mm-hmm. And I really think anointing is a perfect word for it, but it just, God God pushed us towards each other, but it, we were attracted to the God in each of us, yeah. the, what, what each of us was pursuing. And I think for me, at least personally, I was ripe for it. Mm. I know I was giving you a hard time, Todd, but the reality is there's a lot of your story that's very similar to my wife and I as well. Now, you mentioned this trip to Costa Rica, which mm-hmm. I think had a pretty significant impact on you. Like, tell me a little bit more about that mission trip. You come back like, yo, it's Jesus or nothing. So what happened there? <laughs> I had had a job at, at Kings Island, the local amusement park in my city, and I was working on this roller coaster. It was so much fun. I told them they didn't even have to pay me. In fact, I'd pay them to come every day. Mm. I just, I, I love the atmosphere and the people but my whole goal that summer was to earn enough money to have a cool wardrobe my junior year in high school. Mm. And I was kind of quickly getting attracted to some of the wrong things. And I saw this ad in this magazine I was getting at the time called Campus Life, and it was for this summer mission trip. And I took it downstairs to show my parents, thinking there's no way on earth they're going to let me do this. And my dad was like, I think that's a great idea for you. And I mean, two weeks later, I was on a plane, and we were in Costa Rica and Nicaragua for about six weeks. And when I was in the border of Costa Rica and Nicaragua, I spent some time in a refugee camp. And my job as a high school kid was to point people who were coming out of Nicaragua into Costa Rica for safety to an intake tent and to give them a cup of water and, and two things of rice. And I was seeing people, like literally interacting with people that were nothing like me. And they were fleeing a government I couldn't even conceive of. Mm. And a lot of times, they had walked the whole time there to the camp. And so they had used their clothes for all kinds of things en route and didn't have much clothing on by the time they got to us. So I had never seen anything like a bunch of scantily clad Nicaraguans coming out of the wilderness. Mm. And it made this big impression on me. And the last day I was there, I went up to the the director of the camp, which I now realize, you know, tens of thousands of people, he was really busy. But I was like, hey, my name is Beth Ewing, and tomorrow I'm going back to my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, and I just need to know what is your biggest need. And the guy looks around and he goes, um, clothes. And I think he was probably blowing me off, but I literally was like commissioned. I was like, okay, like, you know, salute, clothes, I'm coming for you. So, so I wait, back- I, I, I got to pause because I, you started the story saying how your goal for the summer yes. of working at King's Island was to enhance your wardrobe. Yes. How did that hit you to go from that to then seeing people using their clothes as like survival tools? To burn things, to bury things. To, yeah, I mean, crazy. And mm. so I came home and God was just, you know, he was he was massaging my heart for all kinds of future work. 
So I came home and this is like the days of like slides. So I made a slideshow of my um, mission trip and I went to all my area high schools in the city and I asked Kings Island if I could use the parking lot one day for a clothing drop off and they said yes. So the day the clothing drop happened, my dad took off work because I think he was nervous about me being out there on the side of the highway by myself. So people are dropping off clothes all afternoon. I was so excited thinking about them going to the refugee camp. And this guy pulls up and he takes out his wallet and he's like, hey, are you collecting? Do you have a can or anything? Are you collecting for shipping? And I was like, shipping? <laughs> Hadn't thought that through. No. And my dad walks over and he says to the guy, hey, we have a private donor who's covering shipping. And the guy's like, great. And he drives off and I looked at my dad and I'm like, hey, I didn't think about that. You think it's gonna cost very much to, to ship these clothes? And that night he and I drove 189 boxes of used clothing to the post office and he paid some big check to the US Postal Service. I didn't even know what it was, but I didn't even go to bed that night. I just laid there and thought, I saw something in the world mm -hmm. and I did something about it. And it definitely was the, the seed of the story I would later live, but I didn't even realize that till 10 years later. Todd and I were getting ready to start our missionary journey and we packed up our car to move to Mexico and a box didn't fit in it. So I drove to the exact same post office to ship this box ahead to the place we were gonna be staying. And they told me how much it was gonna cost. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm not paying you that much for this box. The stuff inside of it is not even worth that much. And the guy was like, well, it's not a negotiation. Like this is how much it weighs and this is how far it's going. And I had this flashback to the 10 years before and the 189 boxes in that lobby. And I sat on that box and I called my mom and I was like, what were you thinking? You people should have written a check to that organization. They could have bought seven times this amount of clothes that day in country. And she just took a deep breath and she said, that morning when your dad woke up, he said to me, I feel a prompting in my spirit to invest in Beth today at all costs. Mm. And he didn't even know what that would mean. And I think he died in that 10 year window. So he never saw any of the missionary events in my life wow. unfold. And here's to hoping there's a window in heaven and you can see 25 years later, I've been getting all kinds of things cross borders, <laughs> but God's economy, it doesn't make sense sometimes to do things. God prompts things because he's seeing something that's gonna happen much down the road. Like all of that, that became really important faith lessons for me mm -hmm. because I would find sometimes, I still find sometimes God asks me to do things or promise me to do things that my brain wars against like that doesn't make any sense there's a better way to do this but man if God asks you to do something it's because he's telling a story that's much longer tail than we can mm. see and and even though my dad died um, before any of those things happened for me I feel his influence mm. in the decision making and in the spiritual formation I would later have as an adult Wow, that's powerful. And I, I know it's it sounds like a very like a God moment when you saw the boxes in that first clothing drive with your dad. But how could you put it into words? What you said it was just this sense this thing. Describe that. I didn't I didn't go to bed that night. Mm. That's that's probably the most telltale. I literally couldn't fall asleep. I just laid in my bed and thought to myself, there's a whole great big world out there. What else is there going on? Like, what else What else do I need to see? I now know that I'm someone that literally loves to run into chaos, mm. but I didn't know that about myself at the okay. time. I hadn't been exposed to that much chaos. In fact, all the adults in my life were trying to protect me from chaos. Mm. But it was the first time that I was like, God can use me. I think that's part of it too. God like, can use me. what's that going to mean? Wow. And 
that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about working with students because who knows whether they come in and out of our lives for just a short period of time. If we can be catalysts for them to understand that God can use them, mm. well, probably first that he loves them more than he can use them, right. but that when he does use them, he can do things much bigger than they could ever imagine. All of that awakening, every mm. time I see it, light bulb go in in a student, it takes me back to the King's Island mm. parking lot. <laughs> so, Tom, let me just bounce off of one thing real quick. I'm really curious on this thread because Beth just mentioned this tension between, on the one hand, the culture sheltering us from chaos and crisis, but also being someone kind of felt called and really set on fire and passion by seeing the chaos and seeing a calling to meet that need. How do you process that and what are some insights that you have about that same dynamic? Beth worked with a, another gentleman for about seven months on a project. And he said, what do I need to know about working with your wife? And I said, there's only one thing you need to know. You can't beat the hope out of her. Mm-hmm. And I think those things in her life, especially her, her mom's unconditional love, her dad's you know decisions to, to st- come alongside her with the shipping the box, I think those foundationally put seeds in her mm-hmm. that let her see hope in hard. Let her see hope in the difficult. And and I think how my story comes alongside that, I'm not as hopeful, but I am tenaciously hardworking. I was raised to serve. My parents were hard work, hard work, hard work. And so I think those two combinations somehow have allowed us to be who we've become <laughs> and run to hard. We have a lot of hard stories in what we do and, and how we've served and lived out both personally and in ministry. And I think that kind of shaped us early on. And for some reason, I don't know if it was the moment that I received Christ when I was in high school, when I was 15 years old, he broke something in me in a good way mm-hmm. that said, I'm going to use you for something different. Mm-hmm. And my gospel is is so great for you. And so I'm overwhelmed, honestly, all the time by God's unconditional love for me. It's, it just seems near impossible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So she comes back from this mission trip on fire, right? Like, we got to do more this clothing drive and everything. But what is the catalyst for you? What was your igniter that caused you to see this vision and being a solution for the chaos in the world? So I think it was right before college. We I went on a mission trip also to Mexico. I was only there about eight days. But I remember writing in my journal that day. It was me listening and praying to God. And I literally felt like he called me commission me. This is what I've made you to do. And that was it. I'm here to serve. In this case, in Mexico, I came back and I told Beth, I said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go do something. We didn't know what exactly it was. We still had four years of college ahead of us, but we, we were dead set on, we're going to do something together and we're going to serve in some capacity. Wow. That's pretty major coming into college, right? I haven't even gotten there yet. So you still are very ambitious, but really as you said, anointed high school students. So how does that dream and that vision develop into back-to-back ministry? In college, we got really involved with an organization called Crew or Campus Crusade Mm -hmm. for Christ. And every time they got on airplanes to go somewhere, we tried to go with them. Mm. And we went to the country of Albania right after the wall fell. One afternoon, I now realize as someone who organizes mission trips, that there must have been a scheduling issue. They didn't have anywhere to take us. And so we went to a local orphanage for the afternoon and we saw this orphanage and it was just like 
that's it. Again, I'm, I was a big fan of the gospel, but there was nothing. Mm. It just felt, I don't know. I can remember everything about that afternoon yeah. still, and it's been a long, long time. <laughs> so I think that experience in Albania kind of honed our vision to we're going to work with vulnerable kids mm. someplace in the world. That was the specific calling. Yeah. And then later in college, we were actually serving with our church in Mexico again. And Beth and I actually got in a taxi. We didn't speak any Spanish. We basically said, take us to an orphanage. But we were like, orphanatorio. We were making up words to make it sound like it was supposed to be. So he somehow figured it out. And we got to this home that had a big front door. And we knock on the door. And a guy answers. And we try in our broken Spanish saying what we're doing. And ends up he speaks English. So we said, hey, we've got 25 high school students with us. We're helping lead the team. And we got one day left. Can we come and serve here at this orphanage and he's like well i guess the kids haven't eaten meat in a year and sure we'd love to have you and so we went the next day we went out and bought some meat and it was really really great we had the kids were playing with the kids and we we're doing some projects we were fixing some windows that were broken and so we're trying to at least make an investment and i called beth over i think and i said hey the, these kids are carrying four or five plates of hamburgers there's just no way they're eating that much and so beth follows a little four-year-old up to her dorm room and the she watches and the little girls are helping each other hold up the mattresses and sliding the hamburgers under their beds because mm. they want to save them for later so mm. that albania kind of the my early mission trip we call those our defining moments one thing i appreciate about hearing you and having heard both of you speak before is you're very much committed to framing everything you do in a biblical kind of framework and understanding when you talk about being on that plane and thinking about the orphans that you saw, the poverty that you saw, how did that shape your understanding of God's care? You know, how that fit into the plan of what we needed to be focused on as a church, not just kind of spiritual needs, but physical needs. So help us understand that. Once we saw those kids hiding their food under the mattress and we realized <laughs> lots of things we can't do anything about, but helping orphans get food. There's at least some place we can start. We were double income, no kids, so we had just a little bit more money than we needed. And we put one of our salaries in a bank account for the year and lived off of the other one. And at the end of that year, we thought we were sitting on a treasure, which it was just one year of a teaching salary, but it felt like a treasure. And it's with that treasure that we then decided, let's just go move to Mexico and live there until this treasure runs out and see what we can learn about the culture of the hurt child, what we can learn about the Mexican culture, what we can learn about God's heart for marginalized, what we can learn about each other. That was the moment when we decided this journey is gonna begin. And then we got to Mexico, July of 1997. That's when we moved there for the first time. and. We had a group of students show up not too long after we got there to come on our mission trip. Todd and I didn't even know what we were doing, really. And I was looking at these students like, Lord, why did you bring them here? Like, what in the world could we possibly do in the face of so much need? I got out a piece of paper and I said, every single orphan you interact with has had their heart ripped in half, and I ripped it in half. And then I started to tell them some of the experiences we knew orphans had at school and dorm rooms and visitation days as they try to fall asleep when they work in homework. I just kept ripping and ripping, and I said, with this tiny little fraction of a piece of paper I have left, if I told this child that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life, there's no place for that gospel to grow. It, there's, there's no heart there fertilized enough for them 
to even understand that. We're going to have to actually love them for a long time before the gospel will even have a context. And we were realizing eventually an orphan would look over at us and be like, who are these people? And why do you care so much? And whoever got to be an earshot of those sets of questions got to say, my gosh, they're just extensions of a God who loves you and he sees you and he's in pursuit of you. And he has this unbelievable plan for your life. And now they're ready to hear the rest of the gospel message. But really very early, we realized there needed to be deep care for the whole of a person, especially for a kid who's experienced trauma before a gospel story would really. And so if, if people have testimony, like I met this orphan and I share the gospel and they prayed to receive Jesus, that's amazing. It just means somebody went before you and did all that work before you. When we come back, Beth and Todd will help us recognize and live out the passions God calls us to. Our callings may not look the same, but God has a story being written for each of us. Todd and Beth reflect on their story and how they got to where they are now when we come back on Where You're From. If you're enjoying Where You're From, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one-sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five-star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of Where You're From. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. Hi, friends. My name is Jade Gustafson, and I'm one of the producers from Where You From. Before we get back to our conversation with Beth and Todd Guckenberger, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with hip-hop artist Tadashi. This is Where You From. I heard about God. I heard about stuff in church, heard about stuff from people, but God always felt like the, the grandfather who on a good day would flip you a quarter and on the bad day he just flip you off. Mm. I'm like, I thought that's how God was. I was mm. like, yeah, you're just like a real weird old man that don't like you some days and mm. some days you do. And he said, no, God wants a relationship with you. Mm. And that, I mean, bro, I tell everybody at that moment, I really believe the gift of faith was given. It felt like a warm embrace on the inside. Mm. And for the first time in my life, All of the hunting and searching, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? Can I achieve this? Will I fail at that? Went away and I felt peace. Welcome back to Where You're From. 
I'm Rasul Berry. In just a moment, we'll jump back into our conversation with Todd and Beth Guckenberger. But before we do, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. They not only contain the talking points for today's show, but also a link to learn more about Todd and Beth and back-to-back ministries. The show notes are available in the podcast description or on our website at whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from.org. Now let's get back into our conversation on where you're from. Todd, I know you're kind of a systemic, kind of analytical person. How did that shift happen in your own framework of, okay, this is the goal. It has to be bigger than just proclamation, but demonstration. Yeah, I think because the gospel is so profound in our lives, evangelism became more than just the words of the gospel. And I think it seems weird to say, but God just created me to serve. And that's how my actions show love. And then that builds on to that foundation of investing in others. And I think especially working internationally and living internationally, you know, the needs are so great. And so to meet even the some of the smallest needs can actually open doors for people's hearts to hear the word of God. So I think genuinely just the way God, God designed it, it's not it's not just tell people, it's, it's invest in their lives. Yeah, in the beginning we didn't speak any Spanish, so it felt like a big handicap in the beginning. Like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I'm dying to tell these people 17 things from my, my Bible. But in the end, the best lessons we learned that year is that majority of the way you share the gospel is not even always with words. And the words just sit on top of the actions. Yeah, like the first orphanage we worked in, I set up a little shop and taught kids how to do carpentry, and we would fix things at the children's home. It was real practical and tangible. If I would have just said, hey, God loves you, I mean, that would be great and awesome, but this is the way that it works. It's through investing life on life. It doesn't work any other way, in my opinion. And Todd and I decided pretty early on our marital verse, life missional verse, is 1 Thessalonians 2.8, where Paul says, I was so delighted to share not only the gospel with you, but my life as well. And we realized we were going to impact fewer people deeper than wider people. Mm. Um, and so I, I think there's place in the kingdom work for all the different approaches, but this is just what he called us to. Yeah, that's powerful. And on that, we've kind of mentioned the two different mindsets and approaches, but I haven't seen in a marriage handbook where it's like, you know what you really should do when you first, you know, you should join in ministry in hard places together as soon as possible and kind of just be in the middle of chaos. That, that's not usually the framework, but it's kind of how it happens. Tell us about how the context of what you were called to has impacted your relationship with each other. Early on, we had to work it out because we have both different giftings, really great giftings, and we complement each other so well. And we want to live a commissional marriage. We're missioning together. It doesn't mean we do all the same things. It doesn't even mean we're in the same places, but but we're on mission together. This is what we've agreed to. And, you know, I'm a no detail is, is not important. And, and Beth is a really big picture vision. And so, you know, she cast vision and have an idea. And, and I'm trying to figure out how we're going to make it happen. And, and all those things can cause like tension early on. Now we've got such a at least good communication and process behind it that it got allows us to, to see the benefit of the other. But those early, early serving together days, it, there was tension for sure. Friction. <laughs> I'm like, I'm seeing, would you like me to elaborate on yeah, that? <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing knowing laughs like there's a story behind that. Oh, I mean, 
lots of stories. But there's something about being in over your head, which is what we were. When we moved to Mexico, we were in over our head in every sense. We got pregnant immediately. We entered into the adoption process almost immediately. Mm. We didn't speak the language immediately. It just everything was just so much to manage that you reach up to God, mm-hmm. both of you. And that's that like classic triangle. Like the more we were reaching up, the more we were drawing together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we are both people with high capacity. And we, we, if we had been in environments where we could manage and handle everything ourselves, we might have just kind of spun into two really big independent circles. But because we were in this place where we deeply needed one another's giftings and we deeply had no one else but each other, then we we found ourselves coming together um, for something bigger than ourselves. And then once you feel that, you, you couldn't pry me out of that with a crowbar. I mean, there's nothing else that tastes as sweet as that. Mm, wow. That sounds like, yeah, it was growing pains of all. So when you get to Mexico, how long are you there? What's the response of the community? Walk us through what actually happened there. It was a lot more risk than we thought. We saved a salary for a year. We we're both teachers. We we put it away in the bank. We used that salary to live off. We thought we'd at least go for one year. That was an easy decision, but you know I don't know that if I thought that way today. But definitely God used it, and we drove across the border and had lots of chaos at that. But then we arrive in the city, and we had a place rented, but we didn't know where it was. So we hired a taxi, gave him the address, and we followed him into the house. And so we just had to be innovative and kind of solution center. And it was it was a unique. Year. Wait, you said there was chaos at the border. So in Mexico, we get a car across the border. You have to have a permit. Well, we didn't know that. We had like a one of those like tour guides, and so we drove across the border. They have a red light, green light system. So we got a green light. So oh, it's great. Let's go. We're in Mexico, and so we drive another thirty miles, and there's a checkpoint, and we got a red light, and they said, "Where's your permit?" And we're like, "What do you mean permit?" And then we didn't speak almost any Spanish. So we, it was it was just chaos. So we had to turn around, go back, uh, and then finally got the permit figured out and got into the interior of Mexico, and it worked out. We actually arrived at dark, which mm-hmm. was kind of scary. It's a major metropolitan city, Six loud cars, oh. you know. So I think that night we thought, what have we done? Oh. It was about 110 degrees that night. It was summer of El Nino, so super hot. We're under a sheet, and we're like, what have we, what have we done? Where but are we? It was I mean, you know, it's just, you just kind of yeah. get through the next moment. Yeah. And it God sounds uses super it. intense. So in the midst of that, I mean, when was the first time that y'all sense, okay, God is here with us, right? In the, in the midst of all this chaos and confusion, we, we got confirmation we're, we're on the right track. Almost immediately. The first time we walked into an orphanage that we would later adopt our daughters out of, I can remember one of them came up and grabbed my hand. She was 11 at the time, and I didn't know what she was saying to me, but it was much like the anointing I talked about when I first met Todd. There was something in my spirit that knew that this moment was supernatural, even though it just looked like a normal moment where like a kid grabbed your hand and we went off to swings to think that she's our daughter now and, mm. and has been for 20-some years. I didn't know that at the time, but there was just this, God gave us all these little breadcrumbs that in the midst of like all the hard things that happened, you know, we got in a car accident and we didn't understand how to pair utilities and I got pregnant and was really sick and, mm. you know, like tons of hurdles to get over. But we didn't even feel the hurdles because there were all these breadcrumbs that 
we, we had prayed that first year that 50 of our friends would visit us. We thought, if we get 50 people to get on an airplane to visit us in Mexico, whatever it is that we're doing, we'll have a significant footprint. At the end of that first year, we'd had 350 people that wow. had come to visit us, and we realized that God actually liked the orphan a long time before we ever showed up, and he was just looking for someone mm. to direct traffic there for him, and he was already interested in meeting needs and connecting people, and mm. so we were like, pick us. Yeah, when we have staff come on with us now, we used to tell them we've got to be called by God to serve the orphan. It's either in you or it's not in you. And that's okay if it's not. It could be serving and auto repairing. It doesn't matter. Just God called us to do this. And I think instantly in those moments, it was affirmation. This is how God designed us and how he designed us each uniquely to serve with our specific gifts. And, and there was obviously tension, especially when it's hot and there's language barriers and sometimes cultural differences that you don't understand. And in those early days, the, you, we didn't have resources. I mean, we had uh, the salary that we'd saved. We, it's not like we had you know tons of vehicles or things to do. So we had to be pretty inventive and creative. But God used it, you know, small beginnings. So I think I keep hearing a theme that keeps emerging. There's a need. God called us to show up. And we just show up and just kind of sense what to do, God will reveal at that moment. So let me kind of take a step back then and go, okay, y'all, you both talked about God's heart and care for the orphan. I've heard you speak before, breaking down Isaiah 58, which is one of those seminal passages that does reflect that. Help us understand that biblically. Give us a case for God's heart for the orphan. When we moved there, we only knew James one twenty seven. take care of widows and orphans in their distress. That was enough to kind of get us there. But it was within the first 30 days, we knew we needed more theological meat if this was going to be our life. There just needed to be more gas in the tank because we were, we were working really hard. And we had time. So we really went through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, looking for specific promises that God had for orphans. So He's going to come to them and hear them and lift them up and make them a home and execute true justice on their behalf, extend mercy to them, be their father. I mean, there's dozens of them. And so for a good decade or so, I would teach those passages to people and say, this God has a heart for the least of these and listen to these promises. And he tells people to leave the corners of the field for the widow and the orphan. And like just lots and lots of biblical examples. And then like a two by four one night, the Lord hit me across the head and like, hey, hello, you were once orphaned until I grafted you into my tree. So it's it's not an us and them or an other. This is like the only reason that you can hear people is because I first heard you. The only reason that you can extend mercy to someone is because I first extended it to you. The only reason that you can lift someone up is because I first lifted you. And then all of a sudden I realized, gosh, the world tells me I'm better because I was born into a biological family. The world tells me I'm better because I'm educated. The world tells me I'm better because I have money in my bank. But that is not the way God sees things. And when kind of all of that leveled out in my brain, I just realized I am just lucky enough to be blessed enough to be one of God's kids. And I'm gonna do whatever it takes to put on display that God wants to bring lost children into the father's house and so if we're going to meet practical needs to do it we're going to meet practical needs to do it if i need to get on a stage to do it i'll get on a stage to do it if i need to adopt someone into our family because that's what god has to do that's what like what literally lord whatever you want to do we still have to make sure you have clean water and vaccinations and mosquito nets and protein at their meals like those are those are realities you can't ignore 
but they're just a, a means to, to to be able to have the relationship and the conversation about the gospel. Yeah, yeah. I think the only thing I'd add on that is, you know, it's it's evangelism. It's in a different form, is service, but it's it's the way that we show what God's done through us to others, and I think that's the gospel. And I, th- I think God's overwhelming love for us is not limited to us. It, it's only limited because we don't express it or share it or serve somebody. And I think we can continue to invite people into that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have ever asked this question, but it's definitely crossed my mind at times because I think in the Old Testament you see the widow, the orphan, the foreigner mm-hmm. often brought up, right? But what do you think that's about? Why does God keep bringing up these groups and, and what is it about his heart and his mission that relates to someone like the orphan that makes it such a, a emphatic and explicit call and challenge throughout the scripture? Hmm. That's a great question. That is pretty much what I spend most of my mind thinking about because once you have eyes to see his heart for the least of these you see it in all 66 books of the Bible. You see it in every context of, of Israel. You see it all throughout the Gospels. You see Paul even calling Timothy, who was half Jewish, half Greek, absolutely the outsider of all outsiders, to be right beside him. You literally see it in every part of it. We've got to continue to see ourselves the way God sees us, and we've got to see others the way God sees them. And I think part of God's constant reminders of people that might be having a life experience other than ours is just a challenge to see see things the way he does Mm -hmm. and i think he understands when we uh, put the needs of someone else above our own which is what most of those calls are for about defending and and freeing and feeding and all of that like he's saying like stop paying so much attention to yourself Mm. look to the needs of someone else and when you do you're gonna look more like me and it's a very complicated Mm. question but i think he wants us to ultimately look like him that's good and on that front i want to go two different places oh so much here but one of the things that comes up is when you look at the scenario of that vulnerability in these groups. It doesn't just like happen by accident, right? Mm -hmm. Talk to us about that, like you said, the way that we put ourselves over others and how that creates some of the dynamics and the suffering in the world that you you have seen so clearly in Nicaragua and Mexico Mm -hmm. and other places you've served. Yeah, I mean, we know today there's 2 billion children on the planet and 50% of them, 1 billion children, have experienced trauma in some way. And that has come at the hands of someone who had power, whether it was systemic and they're refugees as a result of some kind of governmental war or tribal war, or it was inside the home and they were perpetrated upon by someone that they should have been able to trust, or like somebody had power and used it to harm instead of for good. And the result is half of our population of children on the planet are in pain. Mm. And so what do we do about that? And I think sometimes I want to get to work on the systemic issues that create the situations in which kids experience pain. But sometimes I think, really, it's 
from the very beginning, God has called somebody to love somebody to love somebody to love somebody to love somebody. So I need to get busy just being about the business of love person to person. Mm. So Todd, this question is teed up for you, systems guy, right? (laughs) Help us see and understand, because people hear that word systemic, but not a lot of people know what that means. But you guys have lived in these spaces. Paint a picture for us about how that works. Yeah, I think I'll tell two things. One is specifically orphaned and vulnerable children or vulnerable families, there there is a division and there is a disparity. There's there's a hand that's been dealt that's out of their control. It's systemic historically or in their lifetime, there's an unfairness that happens. And so then that creates unintended consequences, right? So it could create a neglect. There's a handful of different things. So for our systems, for our processes, for us, we, we want to build out, okay, how do we, in a healthy way, come alongside and work together with others individually in the life of a child so that the individual steps up and works towards transformational change, communities, whole communities, come alongside whole communities. We work really hard not to create dependency in that process. We use Galatians 6.2 as kind of our guidelines where it talks about burden and load. We want to make sure we help others with their burden, but each one should carry his or her own load. But really trying to identify that individually, there is no cookie cutter formula for the whole world. I, I guarantee it. If we if there was, we'd have it. <laughs> um, it's, it's one-on-one, life-on-life, individual. And and I think there's an element of people being faithful and being willing to take risks to get involved in other people's story. And I think that's the best way to do it is people stepping up, willing to take risks, not being fearful to get involved in hard stories, and then really being willing to admit you're wrong when you make wrong choices and then also being able to celebrate the successes when you make successful choices. I think that's what it's about. And we have never seen a whole group of people be successful all at once. We see individuals be successful or or have success when individuals invest in them. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just do a follow up to that because I, I heard you in a message talk about the focus of back to back ministry creating or the result of having people dependent on Jesus interdependent on community and independent and financially sustainable. Why are those important goals? Yeah, those are our number one priorities when we work with individuals or families is we clearly the gospel dependent on Jesus. There is no way life will be successful without Jesus. I mean, it's hands down. We know that. We do not shove that down people's throats. We're very invitational. We want people to be invited into God's story. We love them through that. And then interdependent in their community is really important because that's reengaging in, in society. That's how you thrive. That's going to church. It's going to the bank and being able to cash a check or even have a bank account. There's that interdependence that happens when when there's life on life. And so, you know, no one can be successful on an island by themselves. And then the independent and economically or financially sustainable, that's that kind of burden and load. Where do you get to a place where you can sustain your family, your life? Mm-hmm. And that actually leads nicely into something that really intrigues me about your story. And that's the fact that this isn't something you're just doing out there. But at some point, the mission came into your house and became your life and your family. Tell us a little bit about that and how that happened, what were the circumstances and how that has informed the way that you even go about the mission. Hmm. Yeah. So we have 11 children, seven girls and four boys. Three of them are biological. One of them we adopted as an infant. He's now 23. Hmm. But the rest of them we brought into our family when they were 
some, anywhere between the ages of 12 and 15. So that kind of early adolescence age. So gosh, bringing someone into your household that has had more than a decade outside of your family system and your family values means, um, yeah, it just, there's a lot of challenge that comes with that. And I realize now that the, the kids are not projects, they're people. And so there's, there's no, we don't bring them home to like fix them. (laughs) They're called into our family to be a part of the fabric of our family. And we love them, which means everybody within the family system is going to grow the person that newly enters it is going to grow. Everybody who works with and around that person's going to grow. And so just at different times in our family, as we've added different members of our family to watch the way it's impacted the whole system and our family values and the rhythm of our household and our own faith journeys and our own marriage and our, like all of that is just, I mean, it's, it's hard to explain. I have had people reach out to me who've, adopted cross-culturally before and trying Mm -hmm. to walk that line in terms of living out faithfully embracing someone into a family system and yet at the same time making space for their own cultural connections to to stay intact what have you learned about that process oh my goodness yeah so much (laughs) we have uh children in three different colors Hmm. so you know lots of race conversations happening at our house lots of identity questions Inside the house, there's a certain level of intimacy and vulnerability that doesn't always translate outside of the house. So for our family and all the different cultures and colors and personalities and ages and that come together in one space, we have this shared future, which means we have this blended shared history. You have to get to know their individual history in order to have that blended history. So, mm. yeah, there's a, lo- there's a lot going on at any given day in my house. Wow. <laughs> That kind of really reflects a certain complexity of life and humility of ministry that gives you a sense of humility. So where are we at now with back to back ministry? Tell us what the scope of things are, what you're doing, what you're hoping for. Yeah, so we're fortunate. We have a little over 300 staff. Uh, we serve wow. in eight, eight places around the world. The majority of our staff are nationals, meaning they're from those countries. So Mexican, Nigerian, Indian, et cetera. And our heart is the orphan and vulnerable children and families. So we come alongside hard stories, whether they're in children or in an orphanage or whether they're in a program that we run and operate, which is about higher education, or whether they're in a community and we have a community center that reaches out and ministers to those families. We want to keep families together. So in those marginalized communities, the traditionally or, or sometimes happens is kids get pushed into the orphan system or some kind of a care structure that's not with their bio family or their family of origin. So we do a lot of family preservation. We call it strong families. So that's what we're about. We Our staff are heavy lifters. Um, we are very, very intentional about being what's called trauma-informed. We care for kids in a trauma-competent way. So we're really passionate about addressing those issues in a really intentional way. And honestly, the simple answer is they need a safe adult. Mm-hmm. If they have a safe adult in their lives, they'll be known and loved. And so if that can happen and we can build systems and processes around that to have those safe adults in their lives, it works. Mm. Wow. That's a beautiful mission. And, you know, when I heard you speak, uh, Beth, a few years ago, one thing that stood out to me was uh, this word that you were talking about that you discovered in Hebrew. And I think for people listening to this and they might go, man, Todd and Beth are amazing. And I know that your heart is not to 
say, hey, this is just our unique story that, but to say this is actually something God is inviting all of us into, to that same sense of jumping into the challenges of the world, even the chaos. Kind of break down that exhortation that I heard, because I think that other people could be encouraged by it too. Yeah, so there's a word in Hebrew, Heneni, that is mentioned eight times in our Old Testament, and it's translated every time as, here I am. And that's a great translation, and I was telling um, everybody when I first learned the word in 2018 that best translated out of Hebrew is, whatever it is you're asking of me, I'm already in agreement of it. And so I kept saying, I want this to be the year of Heneni. I want to be a woman of Heneni. Whatever God asks of me, I'm not going to ask first what it's going to cost or if I'm capable. Or I, I just want to say, Heneni, whatever it is you're asking of me, I'm already in agreement of it. Then I got halfway through that year, 2018. I'd been on a bunch of stages telling people about Heneni. And I went to Israel and I said to the guide there, hey, so I'm, I've been talking about this word. Can you just confirm for me I'm saying it right and that I'm teaching it right? He listens to me for a minute. He goes, yeah, no, 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 that's all right. And he goes, but you know, there's one time in your Bible where the Lord says, Heneni, to you. I said, what? There's some place in my Bible where the Lord says, whatever it is I'm asking of him, he's already in agreement of it. Where's that? And he opens up to Isaiah chapter 58, around verse six, it says, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to untie the cords of the yoke and set prisoners free and release the oppressed and feed the hungry and clothe the naked and provide the poor wanderer with shelter and get busy about his business. Mm. And then it goes on to say, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. And the Lord will go before you and he'll provide as a rear guard. Then you're going to call out for help and he will answer. You'll cry for help and he will say to you, Haneni. And when I read that and I understood that meaning, I thought, oh my gosh, that's the story of my whole missionary and adult life in over my head trying to do what he asked me to do trying to set prisoners free and feed hungry and clothe naked and invite them into my house and give the poor wanderer shelter like I'm, I'm busy doing the work but the truth is I'm not enough I'm not good enough strong enough fast enough smart enough rich enough I, I'm, I'm literally not enough so in over my head I need things like healing and rear guard and I cry out for help and every single time without fail I can testify that I've asked God for help he's like whatever it is you're asking of me yes Beth I'm here for you and that pour out indwelling pour out indwelling pour out indwelling that's that's the thing that people will say like are you guys tired yet are you feeling burnt out yet that well never runs dry that never gets old mm. yeah Hineni Todd and Beth show us that a little dream can have a big impact on the world. What started as Beth creating a clothing drive in a parking lot turned into creating back-to-back -back ministries with her husband, Todd. Their global ministry and beautiful family came together through the plans God had for them. Their story teaches us that when we trust in God, he can do big things through us as well. This is where you're from. I'm Russell Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Mary Jo Clark, Daniel Ryan Day, Ryan Clevenger, and Jade Gustafson, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. 
also want to thank Matt and Will for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.